0: The preaching of God's Word is in Exodus 34, particularly at verse 6. We'll read for context, verses 5 through 8. Exodus 34, reading now verses 5 through 8. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him. And proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children, and to the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. As far, God's word. It's particularly verse 6 now we give our attention to. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness, and truth. This evening we continue our series on the Lord's self-proclamation, and we take up this passage as we have on the past few weeks, looking at both the God who proclaims himself and what he proclaims of himself. Last week we considered his condescension, that he who is most high has in mercy drawn near himself to visit and to make known himself to his people. And this evening we look particularly at the opening of verse 6 to look now at the name of the one who is proclaimed. And so as last time we considered his condescension, tonight we look more closely at the one who condescended to make himself known. And this is, of course, the foundation. The Lord, notice, the Lord God. This is that more intimate revelation of Himself. It's, as it were, His name. And everything else that follows is attributing something to Himself. It's explaining, opening up a bit further understanding of who this Jehovah is. Notice in verse 6, that you have three times the word in our English, Lord, appearing in all capitals. And that's because it is standing for the Hebrew, Jehovah, or as some say, Yahweh or Yahweh and so on. But it is those four Hebrew consonants which here present themselves to us as Jehovah, the name of God. Now, brethren, you'll notice Moses' response. We've pointed this out before and we'll come to consider it more fully as the Lord gives us opportunity that though the Lord is emphasizing, declaring His mercy and grace, Moses falls down on his face, bowed his head to the earth, and worshipped. Moses is struck by the truly awful and awesome sight that God is displaying, which is striking in our own generation because there is, if we are fair, little about the God proclaimed today that makes people fall on their face. There's a lot that causes people to walk around with some degree of perceived comfort. There's a lot that makes people have a momentary feeling of encouragement. And there is a lot, of course, that makes people feel as if they're okay. But There is little which in our day and in our age compels men, having come face to face with the revelation of God, to fall on their face. And yet this is not uncommon in the Scriptures. We see it here with Moses. We see it with Isaiah. We see it with Ezra, Nehemiah. We see it with Daniel. We see it with John. We see it with Paul. It happens again and again when God, as it were, draws near and makes Himself known. It is then that to those whom He makes Himself himself known that they are arrested with the transcendent glory of God. This is not contrary to comfort, but it is to testify that the comfort experienced is an altogether different comfort than is often felt by the world. It is a comfort in knowing that this God who transcends is truly the God who is merciful. And if we are to benefit from what the Lord proclaims of Himself, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, it will be beneficial for us to consider well the One who tells us of himself that he is merciful and gracious and long-suffering. The value and benefit of someone's self-proclamation depends much upon who it is that is proclaiming himself. So think of it this way, to make a stark contrast. Satan presents himself as an angel of light. He tells us that he's good, that He's good for us, that He's wise, and that He has good things to offer. Yet Christ cuts through it all and says, Satan is a liar. Indeed, he is the father of lies. And so his own self-proclamation is entirely discredited. But We can go to men, and men are mixed things, are they not? Where there's some degree of accuracy and other degree as well of inaccuracy more or less depending on the man depending on the measure of grace as well. And so it is, the Scriptures tell us that it is not the wise man who goes about telling others of himself. Let another praise you and not you yourself. And yet people still today like to, in their bitterness, say, well, I'm a pretty good person and I don't understand what's going on because I'm good and serviceable and all of these different things. But when we come to what's before us, we have the One who is able with the utmost of accuracy and legitimacy to testify to us of Himself in the highest way because He is the highest One. Indeed, He transcends any measurement of height. Notice in the text before us, we have a few things. We have two actions recorded of the Lord. The first is the Lord passed by before him. This is in accordance with what he earlier said in chapter 33, verse 22. It shall come to pass, he said to Moses, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And earlier as well in that, When he says in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before thee and proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. So here, what was foretold is now being done. He has, as we considered last time, already descended. So he's manifesting his presence in this cloud. So though there's manifestation, there's also shadowing of it. So this reminds us that there's no ability for us to take in all that is in God There's much that remains shadowy as He descends in the cloud, and yet there's truth. As He passes by, notice, which is both His glory passing by, hidden from Moses, so that Moses would not be consumed, as God had said, but also His goodness being proclaimed. That brings us to the second of these actions. That the Lord Jehovah who passed by before Him, that is Moses, proclaimed. This word proclaim means to call out. So he's audibly testifying to Moses. He's displaying to Moses. He is proclaiming, notice, himself. So the action of proclaiming leads to the other thing in the text, what it is that is proclaimed. And the first and most significant thing that is proclaimed is the actual name of God. Notice, He proclaimed the Lord, or if you will, more from the Hebrew, Jehovah, Jehovah God, or El. The Lord, the Lord God. Jehovah is the word that comes from the verb to be. So children, you can think of, of course, we use the language of to be, and yet we also understand that that means if we're talking first person, I am, or first-person plural, we are. So the word be, even in English, doesn't always come out with the two letters B-E. It has to do with existence. And you'll remember, of course, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, the verb appears twice that is related to the name Jehovah. When Moses stands before the burning bush and God says, tell them, I am that I am hath sent me to you. That verb that's used twice in Exodus 3 is the root of the name Jehovah that appears not only here, but every time in your English Bibles where you see all capitalized L-O-R-D. And so this is, of course, a searching testimony. It has been translated in Greek as the One Who Is which, of course, you can see in the New Testament, that idea, as we've already read from Revelation 1 as well. The French version refers to Jehovah as the Eternal, which, of course, is trying to represent the idea behind the Hebrew. And in the Spanish, you have it simply more closely related to the Hebrew Jehovah. The point is, whereas we see the word Lord and we think not illegitimately entirely king, when you see it all capitalized, it's good to force yourself to remember this is the name, Jehovah. And you have it here twice. Notice Jehovah, Jehovah God. This word God is El, which refers to strength and might and often is translated Almighty. Now, keep that in mind. We pointed this out a little bit in reading from Revelation chapter 1. If you look there just by way of comparison, notice now verse 8 once more, when it is that we read, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty." And now you'll have a little bit greater understanding of the link between these things. It is the self-revelation of the one same God. It is, of course, in the Greek, it's not that we need to spend too much time with this, but the word that's here, Lord, is the word that would be used to translate Jehovah. And so you can see relationships between these things. The idea is there in different ways borrowed elsewhere from the Old Testament as well. Which is, which was, and which is to come. Notice the language of to be. Which is, which was, which is to come. All of those are related to this idea of existence. And notice how it concludes the Almighty. And you go back to Exodus 34 And you see what? Jehovah. Jehovah God. A word God which is particularly referring to strength. and So you can see this thread in just two verses, but you can see it woven throughout the Scriptures as well. This God is most glorious. A God who is, who was, who is to come. He is the great I Am that I am. There is none like He is. There is none that compares to Him. There is only cause for wonder. Now, we'll get to this, Lord willing, as He gives us life and opportunity. All else that follows in this text is particularized uh, clarifying of what He is. So notice, the Lord, the Lord God, Jehovah, Jehovah God, and then these other things are, as we come to call them, attributes, characteristics, perfections of Him. So these are things that He is. So who is it that's merciful? Who is it that's gracious? Who is it that's long-suffering and so on? It's Jehovah. Jehovah God. He's the one who's merciful, gracious, and so on. So God begins in the self-proclamation proclaiming first His name. Thus the text presents us with this point of instruction. That it is the one true and eternal God who reveals His goodness to us in His Word. This is tremendously important for a number of reasons, not least of which not to awaken old heresies, but you see them appear again and again. There's this thought of God is so transcendent that He can have nothing to do with us. Now, that has a sensibility to it, doesn't it? Because we're finite, we're limited, we're of the dust, and we're likewise sinful. But what we see in the Scriptures is that though God is transcendent, though God is infinite and eternal, though God is beyond our ability to comprehend, yet He comes to us to testify, not only as on other occasions against us for our sins, but like we have before us, toward us in mercy and goodness. So to explain this idea, consider two things. Firstly, the meaning of this name. And secondly, the glory of this name. And as you do, realize that you're establishing, as it were, in your mind, a foundation for the wonder of what he says further about himself. So in other words, for us to more fully understand and take benefit from what he says regarding what is true of himself, we first come to understand the one... Who is here proclaiming these various perfections that belong to him? So, firstly, then, the meaning of this name, Jehovah, the one who is. Who shall I say sent me to them? I am that I am. And when the world cries out and says, Make God understandable, God says, You're kidding. Make me understandable. I'm the eternal God. I am the great I am that I am. If by that you think for me to make myself, as it were, your object of instruction and study, you're missing a fundamental point. I am the one to be worshiped. I am the one who is above all else that is. Now, as we saw last week, this doesn't deny His drawing near to help us. But when the world says, well, that's too much, really what they're saying is, the God that is, is too much. The God that is, is too much. He's beyond too much. He is, as he said, if he were to make known and give a little glimpse of his glory, no man could stand. Every man would be consumed. Everyone instantly overtaken. So think for a moment. The world doesn't know how to wonder, does it? It doesn't know how to be standing struck, dumbfounded anymore. And so technology comes out and it grips the attention of people only to pass on in the short few weeks that it's the hot new thing, leaving people with this gaping desire, this open wound saying, that doesn't satisfy, I need more. Think for instance, just as one example, the uh, uh, arrival of the smartphone and how that gripped all the attention. Look what we can do. And now, faster than the year turns, all of the attention to the newest thing and this and look what's going to happen and cars and everything else is all, are always trying to push on. And yet it becomes so commonplace to us that we're no longer attentive to it. It's lost its wonder. In fact, for most of the world, there's nothing that causes it to wonder. It doesn't wonder anymore because there's nothing in the world that can actually make it wonder. And it's also because men have failed to come to terms with the only one who is able to sustain wonder. And it's God. And notice, I am that I am. That's not something we put as it were in our pocket, take it out and say, oh yeah, I get it. I understand it. It's something that we stare at and we grapple, grapple with and we wrestle with and we pray through and as soon as we think we've gotten a beam of some light, we realize it's only the smallest little glimmer of this unbearable light of the eternal God. I am that I am. What does it mean? Well, there's no ability to comprehend all that is here because It is one of the more intimate self-proclamations that God gives us regarding what He is. But it does lend itself to some points that help us gain some sense of who He is. All of which, if rightly discerned, will lead us closer to Moses in verse 8 than anything else. He is the Eternal One. Words of course have lost their luster. We use terms like awesome and horrible for things like I got fast food today and you know I dropped my uh, coin on the floor. Oh it's awesome that you had fast food or it's horrible that you lost a penny. We use words like that because we don't understand words and we quickly sell them out and we obviously cause them to lose their meaning. The same is true with the idea of eternal. But it's less because we use the word so much, and it's more because we haven't spent the time to meditate on the concept that God reveals of Himself. Just to help us a moment, consider as we sang earlier from Psalm 90 and verse 2. You can see it in Revelation 1 as well, of course, as we read. But we sang earlier Psalm 90, and you think of this expression Psalm 90, and there at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever Thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, Thou art God. It's a similar expression, these Hebrew ways of capturing an idea. Think of the expression where elsewhere it stated, as far distant as the east is to the west, so far hath He removed from us in His love all our iniquity. And it captures something for us, doesn't it? Well, how far is the east from the west? And you say, well, it's immeasurable, right? You, you can't bring those together. It's not just like, you know, trying to get a, a magnet, uh, you know, come together when you're forcing it on the wrong ends. It's that this is so impossible to measure. That's the point. That's how much God has forgiven us and separate us from our sins and when it says that from everlasting to everlasting your god it's a testimony that there's no beginning there's no ending there's not if you can try to quantify it and you get back and you say okay the earth's been around six thousand eight thousand years you know whatever the exact number is and you say okay well let me just try to get that on a graph, and I graph it out, and I get that on down, I get a a measurement, and I say, what if I multiply that 10 times? And you multiply it 10 times, you say, okay, 80,000 years. You say, what about 800,000 years? And you can start to get your mind around it, and you say, what about 800 million years? And you keep going on and on and adding and adding and multiplying and multiplying, and the fact is, you've never gotten one moment closer to the reality of everlasting to everlasting. You don't close in on that point because there is no point on the graph that matches the point of everlasting. The best that we in our concepts can do is draw a line and draw an arrow signifying it just keeps going. And likewise to the other. It just keeps going. There's no end to it. There's no point at which it finally reaches the mark of everlasting. It just is. And you start to understand Jehovah, the One who is. Exodus 3, I am that I am. Revelation 1, the One who was and is and is to come. Think of that language both from Exodus 3 and Revelation 1, this emphasis on the being. I am that I am. Now, to try and speak in ways that we might get a little conception of it, we sometimes find, as Revelation 1 says, the One who was. But really, the notion is, He is. Emphatically, at all times, He is. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's not that you merely were God back then and merely were are to be God in the future, but you are God who is God of eternity past and God of eternity to come. He is the Eternal One. He has all life of Himself and existence of Himself because He's eternal. Notice what Christ says on one occasion of direct, clear irrefutable testimony that he is God in John chapter 8 and verse 58 and with this perhaps you'll start to understand this radical claim when he says in verse 56 John 8:56 your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad then said the Jews unto him thou art not yet 50 years old and hast thou seen Abraham you can almost imagine their smirk what of who is this guy talking about you know you're 50, you're not you're 30 something years old have, have have you seen abraham and notice christ's response verily verily so notice the serious statement he's taking an oath as it were i say unto you before abraham was he doesn't say I was. He doesn't say, I used to be. He says, I am. It's again, again, the emphatic statement, not of one who processes through time and progresses through history, but rather the one who always is. He is at all times. He's the Eternal One. The most that we can do with this concept is to deny what is relevant to time. So time is, of course, even as worldly men and scientists acknowledge, it's a construct of space. So space and the way that things are in space require time. And so space-time, we speak of a space-time continuum that exists within a finite Reality. Creation. So outside of creation, there's no time. And so what this means is the eternal God is not just this long duration of consecutive existence. He is the God who is without progression of moments, without progression of sequence, without succession of uh, existence. He simply always purely, fully, is. There's mystery to this in ways that we cannot fathom, not least of which is how is it the eternal God relates to the time-bound world because here's something to blow our thoughts. He doesn't relate to history like you and I do. It's not as if history and he are uh, uh, going along at the same rate. To him, history is. The future is. He is God. He is always, at all times, God. And history, in a wondrous mystery, is used by Him to promote His eternal purpose. God ought to leave us with a sense of there is none like He is. Because there is none. Well, this eternal One is, as noted earlier, self-existent course, this makes sense. As many have pointed out, you know, either something is created or something philosophically, at least to entertain the thought, just comes to be or something always is. Well, notice how Christ speaks of the Father and then of himself as the mediator in John chapter 5 and at verse 26. He's speaking of the fact of the resurrection he makes a statement about the Father. As the Father hath life in Himself. That's not something that you and I have in ourselves. We're given life. you understand? Life is a gift to us. The Father has life because He is life. He has life of Himself. In and of Himself. He's not dependent on something else to sustain Him like you and I are. So soon as God withdraws our breath, the silver cord is cut and our soul returns to God who gave it. Our bodies return to the earth and we await the resurrection. But with God, there's no such dependence. He is the independent One. The only One who is independent. This God is most glorious. And then it speaks with reference to the Son as the mediator. So hath He, the Father given to the Son, to have life in Himself. This is not a statement of the Son's essential uh, uh, deity. Rather, as the Mediator, He's been given the right to raise the dead. So the Mediator, not just the Eternal Son of God, but the Eternal Son of God incarnate as the appointed Mediator will raise the dead because He has life in Himself. He's the Lord and Giver of life. That can't be said of any mere mortal. Even the notion mortal Versus immortal, right? Paul speaks of the immortal God. The God who is not like you and I that you know, is born, grows, and dies. He doesn't change. He's eternal. He's self-existent. He is likewise unchangeable in all of His ways. And so you see this in various places of Scripture I am that I am, Jehovah, the one who is, not the one who changes, who becomes. He's not the eternal becoming one. He is the eternal one. Notice in Malachi in chapter 3, you see this beautiful statement as you start to see, as the text before us will emphasize, this turning of attention to the benefits that come to his people. In Malachi in chapter 3, verse 6, notice for I am the Lord, and you should be attuned to this at present. It's saying, I am Jehovah. I'm the Eternal One, the One that is. I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Notice two things in this verse just to illustrate the point. Jehovah, the One who is, doesn't change. We would expect that. Because if He's eternal, He's not going to be progressing along from ignorance to knowledge, from youth to age. He's not going to be going from weakness to strength, nor is He going to be going from strength to weakness. He doesn't change. But it's not just a statement, though it includes it, of His being that doesn't change. It's also a statement of His promises and purpose. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. How many times have we thought ourselves convinced that we would not change a purpose of ours only to encounter circumstances that rather shed light on something and we said, oh, I was foolish to make that commitment. Or that challenges and reveals something in us that makes us see I'm not as faithful as I thought I was. And we change. And so our purpose change. Our activity change, right? Right? That's not how God is. God Himself is the Eternal One who doesn't change. I am Jehovah. I change not. But as we wish to see as well, notice the statement from Hebrews 13. And you have a similar statement of Christ. Jesus Christ, verse 8, the same yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't change. He is the same. Brethren, there's so many limitations upon any individual and all individuals combined that we can never reach the fullness of this name and its meaning. But hopefully we've seen something that it is the name of Him who is wondrously unique, infinitely glorious. Well, let's look secondly then at the glory that belongs to this name. There are many things we can say, but we'll point out just two that we trust will help us as we move forward in the Lord's mercies. One thing is that His glory consists in the fact that He transcends all creation, which is a way of saying he transcends everything. So we talked last week considering as he condescends, one need for his condescension is that he transcends everything. He's above and beyond everything. So if ever there's going to be any understanding communicated to us, he must draw near to us. He must come down to our level and speak to us. This is One of the famous parts of Calvin's Institutes, when he speaks of God in the Scriptures as a nurse lisping to the infant. You think of nurses, mothers, and others who care for little children, even men, when they speak to an infant, they don't speak in these full sentences with this developed vocabulary. They're speaking in little sounds and whispers and, you know, these diminutives that take big words and make them little and cute and so on. And the baby in some sense understands those things. Not rationally in the fullness, of course. But what Calvin's saying is that's what God does with us in the Scriptures. God who is infinite uses language that we can understand in order to make us gain some sense of the truth of what He is. Well, we considered that last week, but notice the emphasis now. When we think of what the meaning of the name is, we see more fully why we emphasize and the Scriptures emphasize that God thus transcends everything. Go back to the notion of the world doesn't know what to wonder at because it's trying to find wonder in the world. It's trying to find wonder in things that are measurable, things that are observable, things that in the end can sort of be figured out. Now, we don't mean that there's not reason to wonder at complexity. Because as Christians, we realize that the complexity is one, as we might say, fingerprint of God's work in creation. And it brings us to say, how great must the God be who has made all of these things? But we realize there is an explanation for the things which presently in the created order are mysterious to us. There is an explanation for, you know, the different diseases that come or the systems of our body that work together or why fish swim in these schools and dart this way and birds sometimes are flocked together and how it is they move here and there and how butterflies can navigate from South America all the way up into Canada and back. How do these things happen? There are various aquatic animals who come from the Ozarks, and swim all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, only to swim all the way back. And we wonder at those things and say, how is that possible? But there are explanations. Scientists can study that and say, well, this is how it happens. There aren't full explanations, But there is the ability to observe those things and come to terms with, oh, that's because this is happening. We didn't have the ability to measure those things, but now we do through this technology and we can see the magnetic fields, we can see different ways that the sunlight is hitting, and we understand how these things are taking place more so. But with God, there's no such ability to close that gap because He is... Infinite, transcending all that is. He transcends all men. Notice in Jeremiah 17 and verse 5, Jeremiah 17 and at verse 5, we have this statement so worthy of our meditation. Thus saith the Lord. See that again? And you'll start to see this in the Scriptures, the emphasis. It's not just a filler. It's not just a reverent way of speaking of God. There's meaning in God inserting His name. Thus saith Jehovah, the Eternal One, the One that is cursed, be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from Jehovah. Why does that make sense? Why is it, that the one who trusts in man is cursed because he's trusting in a trivial creature while rejecting the transcendent God and notice a connection here he makes flesh his arm well notice as well by way of comparison second chronicles in chapter 32 second chronicles chapter 32 and you'll notice In verse 7 and in verse 8, this exhortation Be strong and courageous, be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him. And we would say, What are you talking about? Be not afraid of the king and the multitude that is with him, for there be more with us than with him. Wait, time out. I've taken the inventory, I've seen the rolls. That's not true. With Him, verse 8, is an arm of flesh. But with us, is Jehovah our God to help us and to fight our battles. With us is the Eternal One. With them is the trivial, trite, and vain arm of flesh. On our side is the Eternal God who transcends all mankind. On their side is dust. On our side is the living One. The Lord and Giver of life. The Lord who in a moment can simply withdraw life from all of these warriors and they're done. With them, at best, is ordered dust, systems that are working, and people who can do physical things, but have no power to overthrow the Lord God. He transcends all men. People wonder at the feats and accomplishments of men because their scale is too short. It's too zoomed in. Right? You've seen scales that people manipulate, particularly around politics, it comes out. Right? Look at the bar graph and you say, whoa, look at that supermajority. But then you look at the scale and you say, well, this is all being Manipulated. Well, similarly, when you wonder at men, it's because your scale is distorted. When you look at men's strength, it's because you're looking relative to other puny men. That's what makes us afraid of men. We say, well, they're stronger than I am. They we say, well, they're stronger than our whole nation is. They're stronger than all of our are. And we start to writhe in agony and we start to worry ourselves and become anxious and all the while, we're forgetting that this scale is so out of proportion because the one who's for us is the one who can't be measured by the scale. The Lord Jehovah. Notice earlier than what we read in Isaiah chapter 40, though from chapter 40 really onward, this sort of theme comes up again and again throughout these number of chapters. But in Isaiah chapter 40, Notice at verse 22, it speaks of God. Notice, "...that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants," plural, universal, "...thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. That bringeth the princes, the mighty ones, to nothing, he maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And He shall also blow upon them. And they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will ye liken Me? Or shall I be equal, saith the the Lord, the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their hosts by number, he calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. And then notice again the connection. Anticipating what's to come in verse 31. They that wait upon Jehovah. This One. This Eternal One shall renew their strength. And so on. Brethren, one reason we worry is because we ignore. We ignore the One who is God. And though we're familiar with terms, and we can recite certain statements that are orthodox and true, we can take the catechism, this sort of, intense summary. What is God? God is a Spirit. And we use those quick words, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And we fail to meditate upon the truth that's being represented there. This Spirit is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, and so on. This God is glorious, transcending all. Which leads us to say His glory consists in this. It's not only that He transcends all creation, but He alone is God. There's none other. He's not one in a class. He's not one in a genus. He is the one true and eternal God. There's a part of us that hears false religions and were it not so serious, first, a profanation, and secondly, the damnable deception embraced by them, we would lose ourselves in laughter at what they worship as God. You're kidding me, right? I mean, you have to be joking that you think that there's this ongoing succession of gods as Mormonism says. Well, you know, yeah, we aren't strictly monotheists, but monotheists of this world because as God is, man can become and as man is, God once was. And so if you're a faithful Mormon, you yourself can become God of your own universe and have your own spiritual kingdom, and we look them in the face, our jaw hits the floor and says, you are out of your mind. You think that's worthy to worship? A finite creature becoming a human on steroids over the universe? This is utterly ridiculous and lamentable. We hear the Hindus and all of their pretended reverence upon all these creatures and their respect, so-called, unto various creatures because of reincarnation and all these things. And we say, why would you worship that? And we look at this austere view of God that the Muslims have, and yet so impersonal. And we say there's nothing about that that is worthy of worship. But you see, the church, the one kingdom of God, has lost its focus because it's taken its eye off of God and it's put it upon flesh. And churches worry, well, what are we going to do? You know, people aren't wanting to hear this message. And what they subtly do is they capitulate from worshiping the one true eternal God to pandering after flesh and blood, which is but dust. We can get more serious. And it's hard for us even to enter into this because our lives are full of pillows. But you think of the church, the early church, and even today in different places, persecuted brethren who nearly laugh in the face of martyrdom. It's not that they think these things are funny. Or it's not that they ignore the pain. There's true weeping and true crying. But they realize something. You're trying to make me deny The eternal God. For what? So that I can have five more years? Ten more years? Fifty more years? So that I can have riches of this world? So that I can have a monument erected in my honor? So that I can have my children and my wife and my house and my inheritance and all of these things? You think that that's going to buy me off? I've come to know the one true, and eternal God. Brethren, read the early church. Don't be ignorant either of God's works of history nor of faithful examples of self-denying grace because they live out what we are short on. They live out faith in the transcendent God stands exalted over all one passage and then we'll close notice in Daniel in chapter 4 Daniel chapter 4 here of course is Daniel in the midst of exile and what is mentioned is of course quite relevant to us Daniel 4 in verse 34 of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, this heathen. And he says, "...at the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored Him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Nebuchadnezzar has more insight than perhaps the majority of professed Christians in our nation today. He sees something, having been taught something. This is the single One who is worthy of honor, worship, glory, and praise. Full stop. Nothing to add. He's the One whose kingdom is from generation to generation. We think of the great men of the past and their earthly kingdoms. and We wonder. We really do. We wonder at this. And we say, how is it that Alexander the Great conquered all of this landmass how is it these ancient kin- kingdoms and empires of china were so extensive or the various forms of russia and so on and we look at that and we say that's impressive but again it's because our scale is so small our scale is measuring 20 years 100 years the pax romana a few hundred years And we say, that's astounding. How is that possible? Look at the square mileage that was covered by this. Almost the whole continent was covered. And we miss out on this fact that Nebuchadnezzar is making known to us. It is He alone who is Most High, whose dominion is everlasting. His kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants, every single one, is reputed as nothing. In some sense, we can say it this way. There's no great man in God's eyes. Now, in mercy, He extraordinarily blesses and honors those who trust in Him, but that's because of His mercy. When you look at, as it were, the comparison of being infinite, being glorious, eternal God versus finite, limited man, How can we begin to compare? Well, brethren, why start here beyond Scripture starting here? It's because if ever we're going to understand the wonder of His grace, we must understand something of the One who's showing grace. He's not a pushover. He owes us nothing. He has nothing, as it were, upon him that demands he so much as concern himself with us. Because we're creatures. Sometimes we, well, how, you know, this doesn't dignify us. He calls us clay, and he's the potter, and he has the right to do with one lump of clay what he wants to, and he's talking about us, and we say, You haven't gotten the point. Yes, that's the case. Because He's God. Infinite. Glorious. Eternal. Transcending everything. What we look at in this world and say that's worth something, God says, you're missing out. I am the only eternal One most glorious. It is when we start to get the whisper in our ear of this truth that we will then wonder with the most ravishing delight of the fact that this Jehovah, Jehovah God has been pleased to come near and proclaim that He is merciful and gracious, that He is long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, that He pardons iniquity, sin, and transgression. Here, in other words, is the foundation for your greatest joy. This One who is worth, transcends worth. This One who is glorious, is glory. This One who is eternal. This One who is uh, Most High God. How can our words even express it all apart from repeating what He said of Himself? This God has been pleased to draw near and to say to us, though you've sinned against Me, the one to whom you owe nothing but allegiance, glorious obedience, quickest honor, the most sure and faithful service, though you've sinned against me. And in a moment, the infinite power that I possess could be acutely focused upon your being and consume you unendingly because of your foolish stupidity to rebel against me. Though you've done that and deserve that, here's my word to you. I, Jehovah God, am merciful and gracious. This is why he says, you know, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And that's not just about his transcendence, but in context, he's speaking about, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. When once we understand this, it becomes the wonder both at what this God is in himself and what He is to us as gracious. Brethren, behold your great God, Jehovah, Jehovah God, and then wonder that your great God is pleased to forgive and pardon your sins freely by His grace and dwell with you, giving you everlasting life that you may enjoy His gracious, merciful presence forever. Well, much more needs to be said in due time. But let's stand and seek the Lord's blessing in prayer, asking Him to uphold and bless us. us